Dangerous breaches of norms have marked the first year of the Trump presidency. Some would argue that among the most dangerous is this. Many people, reportedly including some close to President Trump, are asking whether he's capable of discharging the duties of the office. Is it irresponsible to ask that question? Is it irresponsible not to? This is Radio Atlantic. Hi, I'm Matt Thompson, executive editor of The Atlantic. Over in New York, we have my esteemed co-host, first Jeffrey Goldberg, editor-in-chief of The Atlantic. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Matt. And <laughs> Wait, what was funny <laughs> just, about that? Just, that's the straightest like introduction I think we've ever had on radio. Not anymore. Well, okay. Now <laughs> Thanks I've... to our other co-host. So the other co-host <laughs> whose voice you hear at this very moment is our esteemed co-host, Alex Wagner. Hello, Alex. Greetings, Matt and Jeff. With me here in D.C., sitting right across the table for the first time in Radio Atlantic's tenure is James Fallows, who we know as Jim, who has been a correspondent for The Atlantic for all these many years. Jim, welcome. Uh, Matt, it's great to be here. Hello, Jeff. Hello, Alex. What does what is, what is low these many years low. actually add up to, So it's Jim? the the first story I ever did for The Atlantic was 43 years ago. It was a profile of a person who was then running for president, a then alive uh, senator from Texas, Lloyd Benson. So he was... He was trying to get the nomination from the person who I ended up by blind chance actually working for in the White House, Jimmy Carter. Two score in three years ago, (laughs) James Fallows embarked upon. (laughs) Which is, in part, the occasion for bringing Jim to our table here this afternoon. You've been chronicling the presidency uh, ever since before you served in the White House as a speechwriter for, for President Jimmy Carter. So we're in the middle of, we are both agents of, I would say, and parties to one of those weird national conversations that sometimes happens. And I'm putting that in air quotes for our listeners who can't see. This time, the national conversation is about President Donald Trump and his fitness for the office of the presidency. Obviously, this is not a new conversation, but it has been given new life by a new book by the author Michael Wolff. Of many explosive claims in Wolf's book, perhaps the most significant comes in this passage from the Hollywood Reporter's excerpt of the book. He writes of Donald Trump's small White House team that, quote, his indelible impression of talking to that team and observing them through much of the first year of Trump's presidency is that they all, 100 percent, came to believe he was incapable of functioning in his job. Jim. What is the American public to do with an assertion like that, and in particular, given its source? I think we can talk about the source later on. On the basic knowledge, I have my perhaps contrarian view is that the public has for the last year or two essentially known what there is to know about Donald Trump. If you thought, as I did, that Donald Trump was unprepared for public office, that he was sketchy on his command of issues, that he was uh, inflaming – negative trends in the American uh, psyche and all the rest, the evidence for that was very, very well on the record long before he uh, the, the, the electorate went to the polls a little more than a year ago. To my mind, the question is, what does this mean for the Republican establishment? By which I mean there's only one group of people right now who really can do anything 
about this knowledge, setting aside Robert Mueller and his team. And that's essentially the Republican majority in the House, the Republican majority in the Senate. Those are the people who can say, we're going to have hearings. We're going to issue subpoenas. We're going to have accountability. We're going to look into this or that. We're going to have different rules for what uh, foreign policy impulses the president can himself indulge. So I think what the American public should do is say, hey, Mr. Speaker Paul Ryan, hey, Mr. Uh, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, hey, all of you elected Republicans, this is your responsibility to do something. What are you going to do? On that note, Jim, a lot of people, or the scuttlebutt in certain circles, was that the Republican leadership in Congress was just waiting to get their tax reform package passed, and then they could finally be rid of Donald Trump. And in a midterm election year that potentially could swing in in the negative for Republicans, they would cut their losses and finally distance themselves from the president. Now, it's only January something or other, so it's pretty early in the year. But do you think that that calculation is potentially going to add up, as it were? Do you think the Republican leadership shows any signs of ditching the president? Um, Here is where I give my standard caveat that I know Jeff is familiar with, which is I made exactly one prediction about Donald Trump, which was two and a half years ago. I said, nobody like this has ever been elected president. Therefore, nobody like this will be elected president. Since then, I have forsworn (laughs) all predictions of any kind. However, it is it is surprising to me that the main sign you see of Republican congressional sort of a distance from Trump is the people who are not running anymore. You know, these how many was it a couple dozen now um, Republican congressmen or or a significant number uh, in in swing districts are saying, uh, uh-uh, I, I don't need this anymore. And so it seems to be a silent voting with their feet. But y- you would think if there were, uh, I, I I just I, I'll ask each of you or ask all, all of you. What can you imagine as a trigger that will finally make the Republicans in Congress say, okay, uh, we've gone this far, but condition X, XSX is the one that finally uh, pushes us over the brink, gets us off the train. I mean, that's a psychotic breakdown. (laughs) <laughs> well, no, well, I mean, I'm not, people, I'm not kidding. Yeah. I'm, I'm not kidding. I mean, like, like uh, an, 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 an active proof or, or inc- incontrovertible proof that he's become fully detached from reality. Right now, he's not detached from reality. He creates his own reality. He exaggerates. He, you know, he, he mythologizes. You know, as uh, I think it was our colleague Jim Hamblin uh, who said, at least he said it to me. I'm not sure if he told our readers, but he he said that it's one thing to say that the crowd size is one thing when it's another. But if he had come out and said, not only did I have the biggest crowd uh, ever seen, but it was filled with vampires. Mm-hmm. At that point, I think some Republicans might say, okay, this guy's actually nuts, but you know, we're, we're far away from a psychotic break. It, it, to that point, I think another, I, I often hear another type of answer to a question like that, which is that, you know, to your point in, in the story you wrote for the Atlantic.com the other day, Jim, that uh, it was an open secret that the behavior of President Trump that was on display to some degree, whether how, how much of it you believe on display to some degree or another in Michael Wolff's book is behavior that has been paraded in public through Trump's self-presentation since he was campaigning for the presidency and certain, certainly since he has occupied it. And in that light, What's different now? What is what is the set of steps that 
would cause Republicans in Congress to have to take another – to actually have to start taking more steps than they already have in starting investigations and what have you. Let me give an oblique answer from a time even before when I first wrote for The Atlantic. The, actually, the, the very first article I ever did for a national magazine was for Esquire magazine, which I was doing reporting on in 1973 and 1974 when I just gotten out of graduate school. Hmm. And it was about the Republicans on the House Judiciary Committee that were investigating uh, Richard Nixon and what what sort of uh, – not migration, but what process they went through in deciding uh, how they're going to vote. And I spent a lot of time with a man named Charles Wiggins who was then a uh, – he eventually became an appeals court judge for the Ninth Circuit. He was then a very conservative Republican congressman from a uh, suburban L.A. district. El Monte was in his district, essentially the same district that Congressman Royce has just announced he's not going to run for, run for again in, in California. Mm-hmm. I spent months with this guy, and he was one of them who finally went to Richard Nixon in the White House after the release of some of the uh, the, the crucial tapes where Nixon was saying uh, all of his most incriminating things. And – Watching this process back then, 40-plus years ago, saying there is a certain gelling moment, a time when the kaleidoscope comes into focus, a time when suddenly people say uh, it's the open secret moment, as we see with, with Harvey Weinstein. And so it, it for, for when it came – going back even further – when it came to Lyndon Johnson and his viability in office, it was the collection of events in early 1968, a subject of a previous uh, Radio Atlantic show, where the Tet Offensive and the riots in the cities and the assassination of Martin Luther King and all the rest made Lyndon Johnson think that suddenly it was not viable for him to stay in office. Suddenly, in the summer of 1974, it became not viable for Richard Nixon to stay in office, and the Republicans told him that, even though the objective facts were only slightly different from what was known before. So, so again, the question that I'm not willing to predict yet, but something will make it suddenly not viable for Donald Trump to exercise the powers that, that he does. And we can't know, maybe this Michael Wolff uh, book will be the, the thing that, that has that gelling effect. I don't know. So far, it's hard to see signs of Republicans choosing to bail out over it. I want to um, I want to hear what Alex thinks might be the break point, but I want to challenge you, Jim, a little bit on something. This whole conversation is posited on the idea that the Republicans are behaving in an unusual uh, and uh, really irresponsible way. But the Democrats during the Clinton uh, impeachment scandal were, were standing by their man. Uh, right. And, and, and their man by our lights today was engaged, had engaged in behavior that was completely egregious and immoral. I'm just wondering if, 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 if the Republicans are acting in some sort of particularly egregious way, or this is just a typical way that, 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 that members of a party behave when they're protecting the president and protecting, uh, their power. So, so it's a good question, which I would, would respond to in, in two ways. One is, Back in the Nixon era, there were a number of Republican centrists or statesmen or whatever uh, who I'm thinking of, you know, Hugh Scott and Mark Hatfield and others who were were willing to say we are loyal to our president and our party, but but th- th- this is wrong. So that that's a standard by which today's Republicans fall short by their own party's standards. The other is to think about, you know, what Bill Clinton did and was impeached for in the White House was – was horrible and unseemly and indisciplined and everything else. But objectively, I would contend it was about 1% as grave a threat to the republic 
as what has been alleged from uh, from Donald Trump now in terms of lack of transparency on taxes, of foreign entanglements, and, and all the rest. So uh, it, I am a little wary of having exact parallels. And, and lest, lest we forget, um, Joe Lieberman, was he was still a Democrat when he was criticizing Clinton, wasn't he, I think? That's true. Yeah. I, I, I think also another differentiating factor is what Wolf, if you believe what Michael Wolf is reporting, 100 percent of the people who work in the Trump White House think Donald Trump is unfit to be president. I mean, in the Clinton. By the White way, House, caveat, I'm not sure we believe. Sure. But if we're operating. This is a guy who thinks if, if people believe something is true, then it's true. This is Michael Wolf's philosophy. <laughs> right. true. So let's be Well, but here. I'm just as a point of argument, right? Okay. Like. Th- there were people that legitimately did not think that what Bill Clinton and and I'm not offering a judgment here, but there were people that legitimately didn't think it was that big of a deal what Clinton did in 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 the White House with Lewinsky, and therefore, I mean, I feel like this sort of moral pretzel, the the what is it the 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 moral pretzel. The moral pretzel making. <laughs> Which is the name the, of our the, newest the podcast with Alex Wagner. That would actually be an incredible the podcast. The moral pretzel. <laughs> but, you know, the, the twists that one had to contort oneself into uh, as a Democrat, potentially, in those years, were perhaps less fraught than I what's happening. I think you're happening. cleaning up the past a I'm little not clean, bit. I'm, no, but I think that there was, like, legit... But, Look, I'm all for the reckoning that we're having, the conversation we're having around sexual assault and predation. And I think in the light of, to your point, Jeff, what we're discussing, in tr- Clinton's transgressions look a lot worse today than I think they seemed in the mid and, and, and early 90s. I mean, I think that's just fact. We just think about sexual assault and predation in a different way. And I don't think <laughs> Trump's fitness for office, which is apparently widely contested, <laughs> Among members of his own party, if quietly, it's not the same. It's an apples to bananas all, all I'm comparison. Saying, all I'm saying is, is that the Republican behavior that seems so aberrant is actually not aberrant within the broad American political context, which right. is that they stick with their guy. But yeah. don't you think this is a different moment in terms of like? Of the course I do. No, of course I being... do. I'm just you know I just think they haven't they haven't caught up in a kind of way. You know, and and you could you could do a lot of tricks in your mind to make you, it seem more normal than it is. I'm just I'm just playing. I wonder though, like, do you think? I wonder what Republicans really think of Donald Trump. I don't have to wonder. I talk to them. I know what they think of well, Donald Trump. Well, what do they think of Donald Trump? Think he's, they think he's not fit for office, and, and that's my experience too. In talking with Republicans, I mean, I, you know, I'm not. I'm I'm just I'm just saying that that I. It's fine. Republicans should be more aware of his faults and flaws. I'm just saying that this is uh, – actually, I'm just having fun. I'm just having a little fun arguing with you guys. I'm looking for an argument. That's so to, the, to this point though, I mean uh, is there something that's distinctively beyond the pale in the observations that Michael Wolf has either recorded or depending on whom you talk to, uh, perhaps exaggerated or fabricated? Uh, so so let's – something where I imagine we all would agree and this is I think implied and what Jeff and Alex are saying is we're not going to take everything in this book at face value. And I think in my piece, I said, let's assume half that's true. Or let's assume a deep discount. Even at a deep discount, this is different, I think, from what we've heard before. <laughs> and I'll, I'll give these couple illustrations. In 
what is now known as the final days for Richard Nixon. It was widely thought that he was drinking heavily, that Alexander Haig was sort of intervening and James Schlesinger were sort of intervening to take him out of the nuclear chain of command, et cetera, et cetera. But that was viewed as a very specific time at the end of his presidency. Nobody thought he was incompetent. They thought he was a crook. They thought all these other things, but they, nobody questioned his intelligence or his, his competence. Lyndon Johnson, too, is, I think by he was by most definitions, a, a actual paranoid. Um, and Doris Kearns Goodwin, right after she uh, stopped working for then Doris Kearns uh, as a young White House aide, she you know, wrote a book about all the sort of mental twists in Lyndon Johnson's psyche, but nobody thought that he didn't know what he was doing or that he was having, he was uh, sort of operating out of fantasies. And I think the consistent narrative about Trump in this book from people around him on the campaign trail is that this is a guy who mentally and in terms of information is different from at least in modern times anyone we've had in this office. Well, wait, I want to understand. Do you think, just let's go back to this for one second. You don't think that Wolf is presenting anything that people don't already know, do you? Uh, my my premise is that he was, was sort of the open secret premise. It was like, you know, or yeah. the, the Casablanca shock just shocked, the gambling's going on, that, that, that he is making more vivid something that had been in Latute, Washington and among Latute Republicans. They all knew that there was something unusual about this guy. And I think the virtue of that is is saying if they everybody knows about this, why aren't they doing something about it? I don't know. I, I, you know, Matt, let's give me one second. I wanted sure. to just read something written in October 2016. Donald Trump has no record of public service and no qualifications for public <laughs> office. His affect is that of an infomercial huckster. He traffics in conspiracy theories and racist invective. He is appallingly sexist. He is erratic, secretive, and xenophobic. He expresses admiration for authoritarian rulers and evinces authoritarian tendencies himself. He is easily goaded at poor quality for someone seeking control of America's nuclear arsenal. He is an enemy of fact-based discourse. He is ignorant of and indifferent to the Constitution. He appears not to read. That's from the Atlantic's 2016 endorsement of Hillary Clinton. I mean, yeah. nothing's new. <laughs> and uh, Nothing's our, new. To our podcast listeners who are listening to that on double speed, you're, you might have to actually re- reverse it and, and do it. Oh, you know, I just started listening to podcasts on double speed. I just learned about that. That's awesome. <laughs> Does anybody do that? You get twice as many podcasts. <laughs> no, you do. You do. But you that's do. unbelievable. To, to Jeff's point, though, Jim, uh, in, in the endorsement, I mean, much of these, th- that same argument was made. This is a man in for office. It, it, yes, and and in the 162 installments that I did of the Trump time <laughs> capsule, literally that yeah. was a number. But who's counting? <laughs> but, but who's counting uh, from uh, March through November of, of 2016? I was essentially laying down the case that that was just you know very well summarized uh, in that editorial. Whoever might have written that uh, was you know Mr. Jeff, uh, <laughs> which made, made the case. And so so I think we're. We're saying something similar and different. The facts about Donald Trump have been there for anybody who cared to see them. And well, but can I but can I interject though, Jim? Because there was still though the and I always encourage everyone to read the Atlantic's uh, point of view on on basically everything. But there were a whole lot of people who hoped and thought maybe that when Donald Trump was sworn in, he would he would somehow <laughs> become presidential and broker, you know, bipartisan legislation with Democrats and sort of 
um, challenged the orthodoxy of the Republican Party. That was um, a campaign premise after all. At some point, I'm going to be so presidential that you people will be so <laughs> bored. Right. So, so as much as it was an open secret, there was like sort of willful denial that the, the secret wasn't what we thought it was. Do you know what I'm saying? Uh, it, yes. And I think everybody hoped that. I hoped that. As somebody who very much did not want him to become president, we became president, I hoped that he would become the deal maker, et cetera, and this would all be a, a bad, a bad memory of the campaign. But, but again, the I think the seemingly contradictory but actually not point that we're all grappling with here is that the evidence of what he is like has been around there for a long time. Something will make it harder for those who can do something about it to ignore. So, so let, the, me, yeah. let me try another uh, line of questioning. <laughs> Hoping the, for better, better answers, right? It, well, this is, so this comes That's from the, the definition of insanity, right? <laughs> Asking the same question, hoping for a better answer. <laughs> there has been something of a pattern of when Republican presidents are in office, certainly for the last three, including the current one, of questioning their – their mental aptitude and fitness for the role. I recall your attention to a book published in 2004 by an author named Dr. Justin Frank called Bush on the Couch, Inside the Mind of the President, uh, which was about, in part, the uh, the mental acuity of President George W. Bush in office at the time. After President Reagan, after he left the office and in 1994 um, revealed a diagnosis of, of Alzheimer's, there was a lot of speculation about how how was his mental state in the final years of his taking the office and is it just that every time there's a republican president isn't there a party of out of sorts liberals who just want to attack the republican president on the grounds that they are somehow unfit or indecent that they're mentally incapable of of living up to the role um how is this line of questioning about president trump different from that um, I, I will start with the premise that anybody who becomes president is abnormal in some way because it's such, uh, you know, a demanding and crazy making process to get there and to have have the job. And you know, when I was uh, before I worked for the Atlantic, I was you know working for Jimmy Carter, and so it is even Carter who seems saint-like in his post presidency. He was was an abnormal guy too, and he became president almost by accident, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> so yes, anybody there will have some kind of strange psychological traits. Point two, Ronald Reagan, by all accounts, did, was suffering from early dementia, at least in his second term. And, and I think that's not a partisan observation. It's just sort of an actuarial fact that, that most people recognize. On the other hand, he was surrounded by some of the most veteran practitioners of statesmanship and politics, James Baker, George Schultz, um, Colin Powell, et cetera, who, who were around there, which is, is different from now. But again, I think it is... Yes, there is a partisan edge to criticizing any president of either party. Clinton was criticized in this way, Obama, LBJ, et cetera. But I think that does – that may distract attention from the fact that this guy is different in his preparation, his level of knowledge, his departure from the factual realm. So in a moment, we will pick up that question. In what ways is Trump different and what has – surprised to hear most about his presidency. Stick with us.
So, Jim, I wanted to ask, you mentioned um, the Trump time capsule, which was an exercise in sort of chronicling the campaign of Donald Trump as he was ascending to what would become the presidency. But you've paid a lot of attention to our president. What now has surprised you most? Um, What have been the moments that now stick out as, wow, I never thought that I would see that? I I suppose there have been two positive sources of surprise. One is that we haven't all been blown up. You know, the, the, the world is a big and tricky and dangerous place in North Korea and in Iran and the South China Sea and in all sorts of other places. And I think so far there's been an almost um, abashed or cautionary seeming reaction, even from Kim, Jong- Kim Jong-un in North Korea, thinking, whoa, we don't really want to rock the boat so much, much here. So that has been a positive surprise. I guess the sort of response of civic society around the country has been somewhat uh, positive too. The, 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 the part of the, the sort of negative surprise to me is in not surprise but 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 realization is the erosion day by day of the things that to me make me proud to be an American, the inclusiveness of the country, its broad-mindedness of being an arena where people from around the world can can realize their dreams. We have been – I think that's both a ideological or intellectual advantage to us and a practical advantage too. I think we're um, we're giving that up. The other is, as mentioned earlier, that, there were, that so few people in the Republican Party, even those who have nothing to lose anymore, like Bob Corker or Jeff Flake or the many Republican congressmen are not running anymore, are not saying – Saying, I'm auditioning now for my role in the new version of Profiles and Courage. I'm going to say, <laughs> you know, here's uh, I'm going to vote for this or that. I'm going to join a majority to ask for investigations. Jim, do you think? I feel like I keep asking you to make predictions, but in this <laughs> in this world, and and I, I, you know, as we talk about the erosion of institutions and the people who are complicit in that erosion, um, do you think there are consequences for people who abide by open secrets? Because I look at Hollywood and I, you know, there was some talk, if you look at Harvey Weinstein, the people who ser- who were around Weinstein, like would they face, or any of these sexual predators, would they face some kind of retribution or punishment for having basically abetted illegal, if not toxic behavior? Um, and I, I kind of wonder whether you think there will, I mean, I, I don't want to, I, I'm not going to make it a prediction. Do you think that there are consequences for people who live with and help keep, if you will, open secrets? You know, certainly I, I think there are eras in history we look back on and we say they should have done more. The grotesque extreme case would, of course, be letting the Nazis come to power. Yeah. But it would be in the civil rights movement. It would be in 19th the century America. Period. You know, McCarthy period and all the rest. When I was in, in college, the, the president of the university was a guy whose whole reputation was having stood up, uh, you know, in the previous generation against McCarthy and, and shaming those who hadn't. So um, I think this will be my one prediction for the episode <laughs> that a generation from now, 20 years from now, when people look back on this era, they'll say, why weren't more people taking a stand? Why weren't more people who could have done something doing something? They're saying that now about Hollywood. They said it about corporate cor- uh, corruption. We certainly say it about you know all the other episodes I was mentioning. I think they'll say that 20 years from now about the people who were not uh, taking stands. I, I tried in the, in the time capsule to say – this is the person you are endorsing, institutional Republicans. Consider how this is going to look in history's eyes. So 
So your prediction is predicated on the idea that we're not in an irreversible decline, though. Well, you, you know me, Jeff. I'm Mr. Not to bring Optimism. Us really down. <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> no, but I, I, yeah, no, I'm, I'm serious, though. Yeah. I mean, you assume that there's a bounce back here, that there's some sort of snapback. Why does there have to be a snapback? So, so, so to wax both um, serious and and graybeard here, you know, the U.S. has been through a lot of troubles, and it's not yet evident this is a worse episode than ever before. It's, a, it's a, I think, a worse national politics in a long time. But but in your previous uh, podcast about the year of 1968, uh, I actually was around then. That was a terrible time. You know, day by day, just things were really happening in a even worse fashion than now. So was the climate worse? The climate was worse. You think? I, I think you know there were in a couple dozen cities there were outright riots going on at the same time, and having two major assassinations within a time of of, of uh, three months, and and you know hundreds of Americans per week being killed in Vietnam. You know, it was a it was a fraying time. But Jim, the circumstances and the 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 divide may have been steeper and and bloodier and all the rest. But in terms of the institutions themselves, and the man leading those institutions, I mean, I can't remember who it was recently said that if Nixon had had Fox News, he might not have been, he might not have had to resign. I, I would agree, and I think that is one one case where where unambiguously we're in more institutional trouble than 50 years ago now, which is that there was, for better and worse, a commanding heights of mainstream media in those days. The worst part is that they didn't pay attention to the civil rights movement or didn't pay attention to women or whatever. Attention did not get paid. The good part is they could say, look, Vietnam is not working out. Look, uh, you know, you have to pay attention to this or that um, development in, in civil rights. So there, was, there, there wasn't the equivalent of Fox News, which I think could have legitimized uh, Nixon. So to return to this question of, you know, what are we to do with all of this? One of our colleagues, um, Jim Hamblin, our resident uh, uh, MD <laughs> on the writing staff, recently wrote uh, a robust piece arguing that there should be some sort of a body, nonpartisan body, independent of Congress and independent of any particular president that could evaluate the president. Let me let Jim talk about his idea here. A panel of people who are experts in neurology, psychology, psychiatry, who could not only administer a battery of tests about a person's cognitive fitness, but could then offer an expert assessment in the same way that a CBO might offer an assessment about what will happen with a healthcare bill and how it will affect the nation going forward and the economy and the number of people with or without insurance that a group of seven or nine or 11 people appointed by Congress could say, okay, we've given the president these tests or this presidential candidate these tests. Based on our results, he's in the 10th percentile of cognitive functioning in these different ways, and we think he would not be able to execute well the uh, office of the presidency and do with that what you will. What do you guys think of that idea? I think it's a nice idea, but the chances of it actually working are – I mean, we're in a moment where we're debating climate change. I mean – where the CBO has now been a body that's under attack by Republicans in Congress when it doesn't deliver the numbers that they're looking for, that number that when it does deliver numbers that are not politically expeditious. So the idea that an independent body or person would be able to sort of make a health judgment about the fitness of leading 
political candidate seems like. Well, a- we, we already do have that, though, for physical health. I mean, the president, right, but I think- you know, if the president has disastrous blood pressure, we'll, we'll find out. You By know? the way, we haven't gotten the results of Trump's own physical, but I think Jim's talking more about a a sort of cognitive psychological profile. I I don't think it's going to happen now, but all ideas like this seem improbable at first, and then they get, you know, carried through. I mean, we'll see. With with any luck, the country will be able to institute that sort of process without first going through a disaster in this presidency. Uh, But, you know, it's certainly a disaster in this presidency will spur that kind of thing on. Jim, didn't Jimmy Carter talk about this in the 90s after Reagan's Alzheimer's was made public? Um, He did. And I think that some of that was dismissed because Carter had famously lost to Ronald Reagan in 1980 and was bitter. He did? (laughs) Wait a second. Wait a second. If only he had the same campaign speechwriters he had four years ago. (laughs) But but I know we're all laughing about it. But inevitably, I mean, it will have to be a Republican that suggests this idea. And, and I think no there, matter what happens, and I, I think, you know, the, the point Jeff makes about blood pressure is a, a relevant one in that we tend to have an institutional solution to the last guy's problems. And releasing presidential medical records only became common after Dwight Eisenhower had his heart attacks and uh, tax records only after Richard Nixon and his uh, various issues and the War Powers Act after Vietnam. And so I think that probably after Trump will have something like this, but I probably like both of you or like I, I don't think it will really kick into into function with him. And Jim's point, I mean, part of the, of Dr. Jim Hamblin's point is that having a conversation about certainly the cognitive fitness of the president, the mental functioning of the president, absent an independent and nonpartisan context in which a body of experts can speak to that fitness is itself irresponsible and itself causes harm. I've tried to take into account all the ways that this discussion can go wrong. People who interact with the psychiatric system in all different kinds of ways can be affected. People who are of advanced ages and who experience discrimination based on that could be harmed by it and the ways in which it can be responsibly talked about. The assumption that there is nothing to be gleaned from the cognitive sciences into what a person's past and present behavior tells us about their future, it's irresponsible to think that there's nothing that can be learned. Um, At the same time, I think it's irresponsible to simply be applying labels to people from afar without ever having personally interacted with them. My view of this is that I have tried to avoid uh, systematically medicalizing discussion of Trump. Uh, If you give it a name, you can give it a name. But what we we know what his performance is. We know the way he talks about issues. We know his temperament. And so we can judge that just without giving it a medical name. One of your points, Jim, about the president that distinguishes this moment from some of the moments that that have preceded it when similar questions have been raised is the quality of Trump's team or perhaps the 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 novice quality of Trump's team in some instances. And um, you recently made an observation about um, Stephen Miller, um, about a moment in, in Stephen Miller. I was wondering if you could tease that out for us. So the context, Stephen Miller was doing an interview the other day with Jake Tapper, um, where he he was quite combative. 
I was, I was booked to talk about the very issues I'm just describing, and you're not even asking about them, because they're not interesting facts to you. That's not true. I have plenty of questions on and immigration. There, there, You've attempted to filibuster by talking about your flights. No, I'm president. not. I'm, no, I want to ask you a, a question. Because uh, don't, you have, no, you, don't be you, condescending. Jake, Jake. Stephen. Jake, the president and the White House. The reason why I want to talk about. The president and the White House. The reason why I want to talk about. The president's experiences, what I've seen with him traveling to meet dozens of foreign leaders, with his incredible work. Okay, you're not answering the questions. No, I understand. You have 24 hours a day of anti-Trump material. You're, being, you're not going to give three minutes for the American people I to get hear it. the real experience you, you, of you, Donald Trump. There's one viewer that you care about right now, and you're being obsequious. No, you're being a fact no, totem in order being, to please him. Okay. So, what stuck out to you about it? I, I could listen to that I all know, day. I, know. <laughs> I could listen. That's like the soundtrack of our lives. Yeah, it's like the opposite listener to you in that respect. That strikes me as deeply unpleasant. What was remarkable? About that well, well the, the, the precision of Jake Tapper saying at the end there's one listener you care about because obviously Stephen Miller with his sort of down the line um, you know, support of Trump with a certain kind of Roy Cohn uh, several <laughs> affairs to it. was that, that, that is something that distinctly previous people in this role have known not to do. And let, let's, let's think of White House aides. One of the jobs of White House aides is to go on TV and make the case. But even those who might be pretty um, acerbic in person like Jake. Jody Powell, who is Jimmy Carter's press secretary, my de facto boss, he was kind of a mean guy. Um, James Carville could be a mean guy. Sununu, who worked in the Bush administration, et cetera. When these guys went on TV, the idea was to have the charm offensive because the audience wasn't just the president. And it was to people in Congress. It was to the public. It was to the interviewer to try to have some kind of uh, EQ connection. So uh, this is, uh, again, this is this is something new in the annals of... <laughs> Of public presentation. Stephen Miller's in his early 30s. Do you think he envisions. And so successful. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think he envisions life beyond the Trump White House? Because one would imagine the prospect of that should curb some of his more combative impulses. You're such a Washington careerist, aren't you? (laughs) Well, I'm just thinking, Mike. He believes. That's the kind of interview. He believes. It's not the first time this observation has been made, but there is definitely a reality television component to that and that there's a character in that's popular in this white house and the analog to that character has not previously been popular before that's the reality show character that's constantly saying you know i'm not trying to be anybody's best friend um this white house there are a lot of folks in this white house who are not trying to be, anybody's, trying best to be anybody's best friend except yeah. perhaps for the president and, and it's possible that this is, um, you know, there is this role which Corey Lewandowski had for a while. Bannon, in his own uh, charm offensive way, had had, had too. And I, in the tapes of Stephen Miller back from his days at Santa Monica High School, this seems to be the real him. Yeah. You know, th- this is the guy. And, and if to the extent he is uh, a principal speechwriter, which I gather is is the case, it's a tone that comes through in a lot of the speeches going back to the famous American Carnage address with which this whole era began. Yeah. Uh, About which George <laughs> W. Bush refer didn't didn't George W. Bush call that weird shit? Yeah. <laughs> that was that was the yeah. honestly that's that what Hillary, we're living through. Right? Okay, that, weird was, shit. That, that was the weird shit speech. <laughs> I'll be I'll be bad about myself. I don't ask this question. Speaking of uh, once again, President President George W. Bush. Um, uh, <laughs> many have observed that President Bush uh, Bush forty three um, has come to be. And a statesman, <laughs> um, in contrast to, to President Trump, and that it's a surprise to have such a um, a stark contrast between the last two Republican presidents. And how do how do, do you, my co-hosts and Jim, now 
view the way that President Bush was described and discussed in the media now in light of President Trump? So George W. Bush will always be the person who made what is, in my view, the greatest error in modern American history, invading Iraq. He'll always be a person who had, a, I think, an economically destructive tax cut, et cetera, et cetera. But he seems to be, number one, to have qualities of personal decency and generosity, and number two, to understand the institutional role of the president and the past president, too, and to try to do things to be president of all the people. So I, I respect him a lot for that. Let us turn to the closing segment of our show this week and every week. I ask you the question, what is your keeper? What have you heard, seen, watched, listened to recently that you do not want to forget? Um, Jeff, how about we start with you? I think I'm going to betray my age and socioeconomic class when I say that I can't get enough of the crown. Oh, mm, yeah, yes. definitely. I'm so, we uh, thought it was all Yo! MTV rap videos from the mid-90s that yeah, were on it, a it, con- it, continuous loop at your house. But actually, they are. Out- Last night, I was I was explaining to my son who Cool Mo D was. Wow, yeah. I wish I had been there for actually, that fire. he started the chat. conversation by saying, have you ever heard of someone named Dougie Fresh? Oh, and, and, and you said, were like, son? Have I ever? <laughs> Let's have the talk. But I've moved. <laughs> the I think Dougie I've, Fresh I think talk. I've moved from Schoolie D and Cool Mo D and Curtis Blow right to the crown. Without really much of a, a lot. way DJ, DJ Cool Herc, yeah. through line directly to Queen but Elizabeth. I, I, I will confess, uh, my wife and I spent New Year's Eve watching The Crown very happily. It's a great show. The, I don't know why. It's because it's, it's a riveting, delicious show. It's uh, And you know what? You know, you know who my keeper is? Queen Elizabeth. I <laughs> just really, keep her around. I just, I, I keep her around. If, look, I, I recognize that it's an idealized version yes, of Queen Elizabeth. That show <laughs> loves Queen Elizabeth. But you know what? But so do I. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, just, after watching Claire that show, Foy I can't get enough of Queen Claire, Elizabeth Claire in my Foy life. As Queen Claire Foy is pretty yes. awesome. Claire Foy should probably stop acting because yes. this is about as <laughs> Netflix good as Queen it Elizabeth is the truth. She is. She She's going to be starring as Lizbeth Salander in the next Girl with the Blank franchise. <laughs> so, True. Yeah, which is true thing. Yeah, true oh, story. Wow. You heard it wow. here first. Well, wow. I'm going <laughs> to miss her when she leaves the the crown. I got to tell you that we all will. Oh man, Alex, um, what is your keeper? My keeper is uh, similarly similarly bourgeois. <laughs> I'm reading like these are just the these keepers are like newsflash. We're doing the things that everybody else is doing. I'm reading uh, Manhattan Beach by Jennifer Egan, and she's a really good writer. <laughs> everybody knew that. I've read several other of her books, but this one is really very, very good. And if you're if you've gone through season two of The Crown and need some evening entertainment, pick up a a copy e or otherwise of Manhattan Beach. And no, I'm not on the payroll. Excellent. Thank you very much for that, Jennifer Egan. What's the name of the book again? Manhattan Beach. Manhattan Beach. Jim. Um, I will endorse both of those, and I'll plant a little seed for our next the next time I, I join you all in the program, which is to tell you about the time I actually sat next to Prince Philip at a dinner. Ooh, yeah, there was a topic I oh, mic drop with. situation over here. <laughs> tell us so, everything. Uh, that is that is for, for you for, can't for, tell us now. <laughs> well, so I to see how long the, the show is, but I, I will. Well, let me just can I just ask Jim? Did he seem like a nice guy? We talked aviation. 
the subject where suddenly I asked him about his piloting career and and suddenly he lit up and we spent the next two hours and there I was at 4,500 feet, et cetera. It was, was, as you can see from the first season of The Crown, that was uh, what actually, I I think the one thing he really has enjoyed in his life is being a pilot. Isn't there an anecdote about that uh, in the foxholes in in World War One or World War Two yeah. that 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 you know German soldiers <laughs> sort of Allied Nazi soldiers met across a trench in and on Christmas talking. Day I think they had the famous mm-hmm. truce right but, but, so this was anyhow the, uh, so that was uh, and, and so I don't need to come back on the show again because that's my Prince Philip story <laughs> no you do but need but, to but, but my my keeper <laughs> is that I've been reading Ron Chernow's uh, biography of Ulysses Grant which really is magnificent as a work of narrative and history and Grant himself was quite a guy. And I think there's nobody about whom I have changed my opinion more than Grant mm. on, the, on the, I mean, for example, I, he must have been the first American president to be, to be able to speak Spanish from the, the mm. Mexican War. But, but this is part of a larger meta point for me is I'm going to try harder to read more things actually in print because you remember them better than you do through the magic so of true. the screen. Yeah. I'll also say I can't wait for the Ron Chernow book on Donald Trump. That's going to be a doozy. <laughs> I can't wait for the Lin-Manuel Miranda musical on <laughs> yes. the book about Donald Trump by Ron Chernow. I love it. That's going to be awesome. So my I usually do the bookkeepers and someone else usually does the food keepers, but my keeper this week is a food keeper. Um, Who's someone else? Um, <laughs> Could you be referring to me? I'm not trying to point any fingers. I'm not trying to name any no, names I'm, over here. I'm happy to be that somebody else that does food keepers. I like that designation. I always Go ahead, like Matt. your food keepers, Alex. Oh, thank you. They usually involve alcohol. Go ahead, friend. So um, the in uh, Guyanese households, there is a tradition on Christmas. Um, on Christmas morning, we have garlic pork. Garlic pork. Uh, you begin to prepare garlic pork weeks in advance of Christmas. You get as much and apologies for any ethical uh, ethical uh, vegetarians or vegans in the room. I sympathize with your cause. However, garlic pork um, for me is larger than it. Um, you begin with pork. You rub it up with as much thyme and garlic as you possibly can, and you soak it in a bath of vinegar. Uh, my mom does half vinegar, half water for weeks. <laughs> you leave it. Uh, you can leave it on a counter because it's mm. it's bathed in vinegar. And then on Christmas morning, you do two things. First, you cook up the garlic pork. You put it in a stock pot and you just cook it down until the pork just shrivels up into these delightfully acidic, crispy bites. And you also pair it with homemade bread. And my preference is homemade butter. So the sweetness of the bread and the acidity of the butter – form the perfect pairing and your entire house smells of garlic and thyme on Christmas morning. It is, I have just finished the last of the frozen garlic pork that is a leftover from Christmas. There's not usually leftovers from Christmas, but my mom made sure to set aside a little bit for me this year. Uh, it is a tradition that um, that should carry forth unto all the generations. <laughs> um, and I grant it to we you all. We are one day, if we make it into the big leagues, we will get invited home to the Thompson house for garlic pork. You shall. You shall. Maybe. You're all invited Maybe. next Christmas if you, if you <laughs> happen to be with me and my folks. Well, wow. You forget these books and movies. Garlic pork sounds like the way. <laughs> uh, it is it's an open secret. It's I, an open secret. I, it, it, it's on my mind. I definitely don't want to forget it because it's, it's the last that I'm going to have of it for another like 350 some odd days. So 
Um, till then, till we meet again, Garlic Pork, and <laughs> till we meet again, co-hosts and Jim, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me here. Thank you. Thank you. Alex, Jeff, don't, don't, uh, don't break New York. <laughs> we'll try. All right. See you next week. That'll do it for this week's Radio Atlantic. This episode was produced and edited by Kevin Townsend with production support from Diana Douglas and Kim Lau. Thank you to the inestimable James Fallows for joining us, and thanks as always to my co-hosts, Alex Wagner and Jeffrey Goldberg. Our theme, The Battle Hymn of the Republic, is by the legendary John Batiste. Please leave us a voicemail with your contact info and your thoughts on this episode at 202 202- 266-7600. Check us out at facebook.com slash radio Atlantic and the Atlantic.com slash radio. Catch the show notes in the episode description. And if you like what you're hearing, do rate and review us in Apple Podcasts and subscribe in your preferred podcast app. Most importantly, thank you for listening. May it serve as proof of your good taste and unquestionable smarts. We'll see you next week.